Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through to 22. This is God's word, reading from Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one of the, or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. And we thank God for his word. Let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3, those verses we read earlier, 1, 2, 3, 6, if you've got a pew Bible. We come to the end of this um, sort of first section of Revelation tonight. Stafford last week uh, gave us a a beginning of uh, chapter 4, I understand. So that's the beginning of the next section. We'll hopefully follow on from that in a few uh, weeks. But uh, tonight we're finishing off these... Uh, seven churches of Revelation. Remember what we've said about these churches? We've put the little map up. Uh, Here it is. Uh, These are our seven historical churches. John uh, is the the apostle, the elderly apostle. He is in exile on Patmos, and he sends this, this letter, presumably the whole letter, around all of these churches and uh, the, the way that they are listed in Revelation is the, the, the postal route that you would take. It begins uh, in Ephesus, goes to Smyrna, and then goes round the circle, finishing in Laodicea. And that's where we finish tonight. And we, we can't help but, but read these letters and, and realize that, that Jesus really cares for his church. He says some pretty harsh things to it. We're going to see some of that tonight. He says some really encouraging things to it. But you know that he is intimately involved, and he really cares for his church. And and, uh, we cannot miss that as we look at all of these things. Uh, Jesus knows what's going on in his church, and he's really, really concerned uh, for it. And and that's what we're going to see tonight, that Jesus loves his church, and, and that means that he will not Uh, Just turn a blind eye to things that really, really matter. Let let me read you, just to introduce this, let me read you a a letter or a part of a letter written by a young Latin American student to his fiancée explaining why he felt he had to break off their engagement. He said this, We have a high casualty rate. 
We get shot and lynched and jailed and slandered and fired from our jobs. We live in virtual poverty. We give away every penny we make above that which is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We have no time for movies or concerts. We are described as fanatics. Perhaps we are, for our lives are dominated by one overshadowing cause. This is the thing about which I am in dead earnest. It is my life, my business, my hobby, my sweetheart. I work for it in the daytime and dream of it at night. I cannot carry on any friendship or love affair or even conversation without relating it to this force which drives and guides my life." End quote. Many of us, I'm sure, are expecting me to say that's a, a letter written by a Christian. But actually, it's a letter written by a young man who'd just become a Marxist in, in South America. Absolutely dedicated to that cause. And whenever we, we put alongside that the commitment that we have to the Lord Jesus Christ, well, perhaps we start to feel a little bit uneasy. Because we realize, don't we, that if Christ is real and He is, if the gospel is true and it is, if heaven is a place to be won and hell is a place to be shunned as they are, then Christianity ought to produce something of that sort of passion and commitment and life-altering dedication within us. But sometimes we've got to admit that we're just muddling through and, and we're really rather half-hearted. And this was part of the problem in Laodicea. Laodicea was about 50 miles southeast of Philadelphia. It was a very well-to-do place. It was the wealthiest city in the region. It was in a fertile river valley. It was beside um, excellent grazing grounds for sheep. And they had a really good breeding program. And they were able to breed a, a a breed of sheep which gave a fine, soft black wool. It sort of made um, uh, merino uh, garments just straight off the back of the sheep, as it were. And so they, they grew up this great textile industry as these woolen garments were exported far and wide. Not only that, around that uh, prosperous farming uh, industry, there was a, a big financial sector grew up, and so uh, <clears throat> people came and invested money and saved money in the banks of the town. It was well known for its medical school, which treated all manner of ailments and specialized in uh, ophthalmics and in eyes. And uh, the Laodiceans developed this special eye salve, a sort of early optrex, and uh, it was reputed to have great healing properties, and they were very, very proud of that. And along with their prosperity and their skill came a strong sense of independence. You remember, we've, we've said in several of these uh, studies in the churches that, that the areas were uh, prone to earthquake, and some of these cities had been destroyed and rebuilt and so on, and Laodicea was no exception. It was uh, destroyed by an earthquake in AD 60. Nero was the emperor, and he offered uh, empire aid to rebuild the, the city, but the Laodiceans refused the aid. They said that they could manage by themselves. A Roman historian wrote at the time, Laodicea rose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources with no help from us. So you get a picture of the sort of people who lived in Laodicea, confident, able, self-reliant, proud, didn't think that they needed anyone. Everything was comfortable and secure for them. 
The only slight uh, problem was their water supply. The city didn't have a good local water supply, and so they put their engineering skills to, uh, to bear on, brought it to bear on this, and they piped uh, water in from a, a, along a stone aqueduct. It was a great feat of engineering that the stones were, were hollowed out and, and so on to make these pipes six miles long. But the problem was the time that it took for the water to get from the springs where it was beautifully cool to the city, it had warmed up on the journey and so the water was tepid. It was sort of rather nauseating whenever you had to drink the water in Laodicea. But apart from that, everything was rosy. Well, what about the church? Well, outwardly, it didn't seem to have any problems. There's no mention of persecution. The, the pressures that had really pushed some of the other churches to the edge had passed this city by, it seems. There's no mention of false teaching. So, so you came along on a Sunday, and, and everything that was done as far as the, the teaching and the, uh, the orthodoxy of what was going on was, was absolutely fine. And there was nothing particularly wrong with what the church members believed. They hadn't swallowed any big heresies or anything like that. But although superficially everything appeared okay, the reality was far from that case. In fact, Jesus reserves, I think, his strongest rebuke for this church. You see what he says in verses 15 and 16, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. It's remarkable, isn't it? The word for spit you out of my mouth literally is vomit. So here is a church for which Jesus has spilled his blood, and he says, you make me wretch. Like a lukewarm bottle of water that's been sitting in the sun, rather than refreshing, it's nauseating. We're going to look at the, the problem here, and we're going to do so with the help of, of maybe three three little titles uh, to say, first of all, all, all tied together with the fact that Jesus loves this church. We shouldn't think that just because he rebukes it, he doesn't love it. We're going to see that at the end. But he loves his church uh, too much to stomach complacency. That's the first thing. Too much to complacent self-reliance. Too much to stomach complacency. He loves his church too much to stomach complacency. Look at verse 17. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So you see here are these words that, that describe a people who have become absolutely self-satisfied, self-reliant, and therefore complacent. The, the church was well off. Its members were doing okay for themselves. They really thought they had no needs. And God had thus been squeezed out because they just did not feel as if they really needed him. And before we condemn them too quickly, we've got to admit that that happens all too easily, doesn't it? You know what it's like when, when, when things are tough for us, when we're waiting for that news from the doctor or that exam result or whatever it might be. When, when things are tough for us like that, we, we tend to depend upon the Lord more. And when things are smooth for us, well, we just don't really think that we need him just so much. God can be sort of put to the sidelines. 
And you see, this is a, a particular temptation for God's people. We know it. The Laodiceans knew it. It's been there, however, right from the beginning of, of the story of God's people. Uh, turn with me just for a moment to Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you've got a pew Bible, it's page 187. 187. This is one of those sort of key passages that perhaps you should make a little note of because it really helps us understand the problem of human nature and even of Christian human nature. So, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, page 187, from verse 10. Uh, God's people are on the verge of, of entering the promised land. Moses is preaching to them, and uh, he says this to them from verse 10, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your gold, silver and gold increased and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers have never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it may go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. It's really key, isn't it? Don't we see that and recognize ourselves in what Moses said to God's people all those years ago? God warns them, don't lose your sense of dependence and helplessness because it is key to being the people that I've called you to be. We've got to know that we need the Lord. We've got to know that without Him, we can do nothing. Jesus said that. And, and that's precisely what this church in Laodicea had lost. Th th their sense was of satisfaction rather than helplessness. And so Jesus says to them, I, I wish you were either hot or cold. Now, now, let's not misunderstand that. He's not saying, I would rather you were cold towards me than, than, than look warm, as if to say, you'd be better not starting to warm up towards me at all. He's not saying that. He, he, I think he's saying, you'd be better to be cold and useful, because cold water is useful, or hot and useful. But if you're lukewarm, you're useful to, to no one. So, so uh, some of the neighboring cities, Colossae had a good water supply with cold, clear water. It was cold and useful. Hierapolis had a hot spring, which people used to go to. You can still go there today and swim in the hot springs in the ruins of the old city. It was hot and useful, but Laodicea only had this lukewarm water and was no use at all. It was a self-sufficiency that Christ could not stand. Now, how, how does the church get like this? Well, there's a couple of things that we can, we can spot, I, I, I think. One is that there seems to have been a failure in leadership because 30 years earlier, 
Paul wrote his letter to Colossae, and Colossae and Laodicea were neighboring cities. And at the end of the letter, he gave instructions that it be passed on to Laodicea. And he includes a particular command for one of the leaders of the Laodicean church there. This is what he says. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. This is the end of Colossians. And to Nympha and to the church that meets in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So they got one as well. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. So evidently, there was a leader there called Archippus, uh, who on a previous occasion, Paul had called a fellow worker, and he had a leadership role within Laodicea, and he was not exercising it properly, perhaps. Undoubtedly, there's more to it than just this, but it's interesting that, that, that one of the few references to Laodicea in the other parts of the Bible mentions this failure in leadership. And 30 years earlier, uh, Jesus had highlighted, the, the gospel writers, or, uh, Paul had highlighted that, and now 30 years later, Jesus rebukes the church. And, and so uh, you think about this. This is not that this man is told to stop doing something. He's not saying you're going down the wrong track, you're, you're, you're a moral failure, for example. It's not so much that he's doing something bad as he's failing to do something good, failing to complete the work that God had given him. You know that we talk about sins of omission and commission, things that we do and things that we fail to do. There seems to be a parallel within leadership and responsibility, things that we, we do wrong, but also we can go wrong by failing to do what is right, failing to guard the flock, failing to care for the sheep, failing to, to warn the wayward, failing to nurture the next generation of leaders through the Irish Youth Convention. You see, we, we only get one chance at, at, at living for the Lord, don't we? And it's challenging for those who have a leadership role, whatever that might be, we are all leaving a legacy. What will be the results of our leadership within 30 years as it was for Archippus? We will affect those who come after us for good or bad. We will leave a generation closer to the Lord or further from Him. We will lead God's people to the truth or away from it. And those of us who have any responsibility, many of us have responsibility. Those of us who have any responsibility need to ask ourselves that, what sort of legacy are we leaving? What sort of legacy are we leaving in the leadership role that we have within our families, within our friendship circles? Are we leading people closer to the Lord and leaving a firm foundation for a generation yet unborn. It seems to be part of the story of Laodicea. The other thing, of course, was that there was a compromise with culture. We've said this with several of the churches. It's notable that this church is so reflective, isn't it? Whenever you start to unpack the the historical setting of, of, of that, that city. It, it, the church is so reflective of the society around it, a, a society that's just proud and, and self-sufficient, and the church is just proud and self-sufficient. Church has just become like its culture. The values of the world have become the values of the church. 
That's exactly what the Bible warns us against, isn't it? Romans 12 and 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. J.B. Phillips' translation, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. And you see, notice the things that they had, they had sucked in from the culture. You know, it, some of the churches had sucked in the immorality from the culture, but, but not the Laodiceans. They, they'd navigated their way through that. But as they kept their eye on the, the moral standards, they were sure about those. They just sucked up the materialism, the business plans that were applied to the life of the church, the general self of, sense of, of self-trust that was all around them, and that they did not filter out as they thought of the task of being the people of God. See, this is what we've got to do, not just with some areas, but with all areas of what is around us that does not match up to God and His ways. We've got to take our standards and our values and our goals and our ways of treating others, our ways of thinking about ourselves from God and not from the world around us. So here's the problem, you see, with this church. Complacency due to a failure in leadership and also compromise with the world. Jesus loves His church too much to, to stomach this. But he also loves his church too much not to detail a way out of their problem. He's not saying it's over. He's saying you're in trouble, but there's a way through this. Although Christ says to him he's about to spew them out of his mouth, he hasn't done so. There, there is time for them to change their ways. And he sets out a path of restoration and blessing. Look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. This is so historically rooted, isn't it? You see, what they had to face up to was that in reality, they were bankrupt despite their banks, they were blind despite their opticians, and they were naked despite their textile industry. They were helpless. And they had to know that the things that they were trusting in were really no help to them at all. They, they really just needed Jesus. Buy from me gold refined in the fire. He says that's a reference to faith, isn't it? Faith described as gold refined in the fire in the Bible. Come to me in faith, he's saying. Where is your trust? It's a good question for us, isn't it? To ask ourselves often. What is it that we're really relying upon as individuals, as a church family? White clothes to wear. Not the fashionable black merino of the area, but the white robe of a good standing with God. You can't buy that in Marks and Spencers. We need his salvation because it's something that we cannot get from ourselves. And I self, Christ says, never mind this expensive stuff that you put on your, your eyes that, but that leaves you spiritually blind. Let me open your eyes. Let me show you how things really are. Let me help you see that you need me more than your next breath. Give up your independence. That's what he's saying. Give up your independence and depend upon me. Let go of your lukewarmness. Give yourself to me totally and wholeheartedly. 
You see, there is a day of opportunity for these people. This, this harsh rebuke comes to them as an opportunity. They can choose to respond or to ignore Christ's offer. And you notice that it is an offer. It, you know, he calls on them to choose. It's, it's, it's remarkable, isn't it? Verse 18, I counsel you, I advise you. you know, this, is the, this is the Lord of glory. This is the one in whose hands are the universe. And yet he says, I counsel you. There's an astonishing dignity given by the creator to his creatures, isn't there? Choose how you're going to treat me. It's in verse 20, isn't it, too? Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. What an amazing picture that is. Here's the, the, the Lord who made us, who sustains us, who gives us our next breath. He pictures himself on the doorstep of our lives, particularly on the doorstep of our church, knocking for entry. We, we often... Uh, use this illustration or this part of the Bible in an evangelistic setting. We say something like this, Jesus has died for sinners, and now he stands on the doorstep of your life and, and says, will you invite me into your life? Will you open the door of your heart? In actual fact, here it is the church that's being addressed. It's the church members who have shut Jesus out of their lives. Are, are they Christians? I, I don't know. I, some of them are. Some of them aren't, probably. But Jesus, nevertheless, pictures himself on the wrong side of the door. But if we will open the door to him, there is great reward. First of all, there's fellowship. I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The word used for eating here is the word used of a leisurely evening meal. This is not fast food. It was when all the work of the day was done, you, you caught up and you relaxed and you, you spent time with those that you loved. And this is what Jesus says will happen. Come, come and, and be with me for the evening. You'll enjoy fellowship with me once again. And as usual, there's a future prospect. To him who overcomes, verse 21, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. So thrones in the ancient world were often like benches or couches. There was space for more than one. And Jesus says, you can come and sit with me. That's astonishing. So, so Jesus loves his church too much to, to just say it's, it's finished. There, there's a path to blessing. And it's just occurred to me that that here we are tonight, and no matter what's going on in your life, Jesus loves you and me enough to put us in front of his word and say there's a path to blessing. It's not over. You can, you can have more of me. And the last thing, just in a word, he, he, he loves us too much to leave us alone. He loves his church too much to leave it alone. These are tough words from Jesus. His ultimate threat seems to have been carried out because the church in Laodicea, of course, is no more. The whole city, in fact, has disappeared. But we have to see what lies behind his rebukes. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Now, we know this, don't we? That, that to set boundaries for children is an act of love. 
to punish them appropriately when they go wrong is an act of, of love. Aren't some of us grateful for discipline in our past? It's for our best. And Jesus says, one of the marks of my love for you is that I will discipline you. And Jesus knows, you see, what we so often forget or, or choose to ignore, and that is that the very best thing that we can do and be is to be wholehearted for him. We, we damage ourselves by being lukewarm. We, we, we think that a, a, a moderate commitment, a moderate Christianity is better and safer than a wholehearted one. We think that we're saving ourselves pain. We think that be, by being cautious with regard to commitment, we're, we're playing safe. And actually, what we're doing is playing with fire because the very best thing that we can do is be all out for the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you going to say? What are you going to say to him when you see him? Well, actually, Lord, most of my life I was really concerned about this, but you know that that 5% was all yours. So Jesus rebukes these half-hearted folk because he loves them. So that's Laodicea. Uh, maybe the most searching of all the letters because we know within us all there is that tendency just to draw a line and say, well, Lord, I'm going to give you this much. And surely he calls us, as he calls this church, to a life without lines, a commitment without limits, a devotion without restriction because he's the Lord. And we don't get better than him. We don't find better than him anywhere else. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we can't help but wonder how we would fare as, we, as we've navigated our way through these seven churches and seven letters, we, we wonder what there would be for, for us. Would it be encouragement or rebuke? Would you describe yourself as on the outside of our fellowship or our lives? Perhaps, Lord, as we've read these letters, we, we realize that we don't see ourselves very clearly. We, we don't understand where we are with you as we should. We pray, Lord, that you will help us, that you will open our eyes, that you will help us to see that without you we are but poor and blind and naked, that really we have no strength of our own save what comes from you. Lord, this feels very real here tonight as we think about being wholehearted for you. Help it, Lord, to find traction tomorrow 
when we go into work, when we're with that friend who's hostile, when we're in that situation where we're pushed, where we don't really know how to live for you. Help us, Lord, we ask, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.